Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We have so many doctors, so many oncologists especially, they aren't intentionally withholding information, but sometimes they just don't remember to say, like, here's what I think and here's why. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, my friend, colleague, fellow young adult cancer survivor, advocate, speaker, blogger, stage four melanoma bald guy, TJ Sharp. As of today's taping, TJ is about to hug his kids in celebration of his eight-year cancerversary, and spoiler alert, he's still here, alive, kicking, and staying just angry enough to keep poking a stick at the dumpster fire that is our modern-day healthcare system. You're welcome. TJ's activism has made him one of the dominant voices in clinical trial and immunotherapy awareness for patients and doctors, and I consider his superpower to be translating the jargony BS of patient voice and patient experience and patient centricity into a more digestible narrative that has actually made cancer suck for countless others. So TJ's also a keynote speaker, so we do wade into the waters on the whole pay your fucking patients discussion as he is often greeted with, but we don't have a budget to pay you, when asked to share his story for the private sector. Enough of that shit. Pay your patients. Anyway, I digress. Enjoy my conversation with TJ Sharp. I'm going to start by asking you one question. TJ, why is there no stage five? <laughs> uh, there is a stage five, but there's no survivors of stage five. So uh, I don't know why we just decided to stop at stage four. Like it's like we go to 10, right? Shouldn't there be stage one through 10? It just makes sense to be one through 10. Why four? Who decided four is the end of the line? I, I don't know. I wish I had an answer to that question because it gives you a little hope if you have more stages, you can kind of back down. And there's, <laughs> It's not just like one, two, and three. There's like one A, one B, two C. And you're right. like, why don't you have all these subsections? It's just, like you said, go one through 10. It's a pretty easy scale. I mean, even DEF CON had five, right? War games, yeah. DEF CON had five. Come on, like, please, people, let's use pop culture as our basis of survival rates. You, you are a pop cultural master over here. I do what I can. And you're eight years out. Uh, when is your actual eight-year uh, melanomaversary? If you want to go the day I was diagnosed, it was the day that my son turned one month old, which would be August 12th. So eight months or eight years would be this coming August 12th when I got the official diagnosis that you have stage four melanoma and two years to live. 
it's always like, well, I had six months to live, which is way more dramatic. But I think maybe I had a better director organizing and producing my cancer diagnosis. Why two years? Seems arbitrary. It does. It was actually fairly statistically accurate because had I done the chemotherapy that the first oncologist recommended, the treatment that he should have given me would have been one of the new immunotherapies that have come out and the whole cancer world knows about immunotherapy now. But if I had done the chemotherapy, the average lifespan was like 18 months. You know, 90% of patients in my situation would have been dead in less than five years. So that you see those, those little Kepler-Meyer curves. That's right about two years is where you see the big fall off. No one's ever said Kepler-Meyer on the show, so kudos <laughs> to you. It's like the Pee Wee Herman special word of the day. It is. Yeah, everybody go out there and Google Kepler-Meyer curves. You can see uh, where you want to spitball yourself landed if you have a, a late stage cancer diagnosis. You're like, you know what? I want to be one of those guys that's really far out to the right. <laughs> I don't want to be right. the, the, the one on the left. Give me, give me over there. So you mentioned immunotherapy. 2012 was, a, that was like the dawn of immunotherapy, wasn't it? Like you had, where were you treated and how do they know? We talk about like, you know, your right to choice and your decisions and you were given like, oh my God, here's something else that you can do besides the crap that you might die from. I live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I, I am a, a Northeast guy just like you, but I just decided to beat the rush and get down here to Florida before retirement. So we ended up going over to Moffitt Cancer Center. I have a good friend uh, who did a lot of research for me. If you uh, if you have a cancer diagnosis, you need to find your ninja because that's my buddy's nickname is Ninja. And he found me the best doctor. So I ended up going over to Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. It's about four hours away uh, to a really excellent melanoma researcher. And, and he basically said, look, you know, you have the two-year thing was fairly accurate for chemotherapy, but he, but he told me there's these immunotherapy drugs that we're trying, the anti-PD-1 drugs, which yeah, everyone kind of knows where they are now if you've been in, involved in cancer at all. Uh, and he also said, there, here's this other immunotherapy. There's, there, it's a series of immunotherapies. You want to try this? But did you ask what that meant or did you just happen to know what that meant? Oh, I, I knew enough. I spent 16 days in the hospital when I was first diagnosed, so... 16 days in an iPhone, you have lots of time to research cancer treatments. Right. So I, I knew what it meant as much as I could. I, I got the premise that, hey, look, instead of just trying to, to carpet bomb everything with chemotherapy, we're going to use your own immune system to fight the cancer inside you. And that's, that's a great idea. Like, the body's a pretty smart thing. We should use what we already have rather than try to kill everything good and bad. So basically adamantium therapy. <laughs> the the one the one that I did was actually it's a very it's a it was a T cell therapy that I actually had my own T cells extracted and then put back in me like the CAR T therapies that are uh, have, have been improved the last couple of years uh, so it, it was very personalized the, the personalized medicine thing was this was like the start of it yeah I mean I, you didn't know you were a guinea pig they say like oh yeah you look great you turned out just fine but you were on four immunotherapies across two trials. And that sounds like lots of syllables, but how long did that take and what was it like? Uh, the first trial took about five months. Someone asked me, did you have like side effects? I go, I don't even know. I was, I was in such bad shape that I don't know what was a side effect from the original surgery from, I think I told you this before, I had a colostomy bag for two years because they found- I did not know that. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a fun thing. It was, it's really good during like Super Bowl because you can just- sit there and never have to go to the bathroom. Just sit there. There's all, there's all toilet humor we can get into here, which we probably should not. <laughs> but it was, 
it was tough. And I was, the, the blog idea was patient one. I was the first patient to try this series of immunotherapies in a certain sequence. And for me, I don't know, maybe I'm a positive guy sometimes. When the doctor told me that, you know, we, don't, we haven't actually had someone that's tried this in this series before. My thought was, Matt, I'm like, hey, that means no one's ever failed this. Like, you know, let's do this. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the first person to do it. And, and the crazy part is, is that it's worked well. The, the trial was small. It was only 18 people. And half of the people got a response. I wasn't one of them. Uh, technically, I right. failed the trial. But luckily, the anti-PD-1 drugs were, were getting into their phase two trials at that point. And I got on the second trial for what's now Keytruda. Wow. Really genuine, like, like we talk about how people don't understand that trials are exactly that. You know, like th this perception that you're kind of a guinea pig lab rat, they're giving you standard of care plus this. And yet, were you made aware? Did you understand like this is an odd, like pay it forward strategy that one day you'll do this and if you do well, other people will at the same time? I think I got that innately. The, the ironic part was I actually worked in pharma early in my career as a, as a project manager and I remember my, my buddy, Eric, sat me down and explained to me the whole clinical trial, like what, what clinical trials are. Here's what clinical research does. And in my mind, I, I mean, I, I can still to this day remember him explaining to me we have to put all these papers together so we can follow them with the FDA. This is, you know, this is, this is dating me and you, but this is, this is before they actually had electronic submissions. So they literally would drive a tractor trailer full of paper down to the FDA that had all the research on it. And... When I was in the hospital, I remember Eric telling, telling me all about that. And he said, yeah, kid, this is what happens. And so I understood that there was this whole thing, the notion of clinical research. And in my mind, clinical research is what somebody, something that somebody else did to get drugs approved. Right, exactly. It became real once you start saying, all right, uh, you have those two years. And if you want to see your, your children grow up and go to first grade, this is likely your best option. And you're going to be a guinea pig. Yeah, I found it very self-evident when the pharma commercials, and they stopped using the word cure and they stopped using the word survive better. They said, live longer with. And I, you know, looking back 24 years from when I was diagnosed in the Stone Age of Clinton, like how far we've come where you can now live longer with and not just drop that from immediately. Oh, that's a nice thing, right? I mean, and some of us, are fortunate that we get to live longer with our disease and something else will hopefully kill us, you know, in 30 or 40 years. I think that's why you and I are so passionate about what we do is because you know that this is not, you know, this isn't just popping a pill and having a cure. For as great as immunotherapies are, they're still, they don't work for more than half the population. And that's just for the ones that they work for. So as amazing as it is and as much money as it's going to make some of the pharma companies, more people than not are still dying from cancer. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery 
starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. It still bothers me that you know, you'd think it'd be in all the pharma companies' interest to make sure someone like you or the next you today is fully aware of all these immunotherapies, but there are just so many now. Spoiler alert, you're still here eight years later, and, and you're <laughs> you're kicking it really well. You've done a lot of work in advocating with pharma. You've done policy work. Have you done an ODAC meeting at the FDA? Have you gotten any drugs approved? Just curious. I don't think I have. As far as I know, I haven't. So. Yeah, right. Oops. I accidentally got that drug approved last week. I don't know how. I, I've done a little bit in my advocacy, but you and I both realize that this whole advocacy space has a lot of factions to it. Oh, yeah. You can't be good at everything. I'm not the kind of advocate that is going to go, you know, march for the cure. I'm not going to, you're going to see wearing pink ribbons and stuff. You know, oh, God. I'm doing, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure. That is a, oh, God, yeah. But that's not my, that's not where I fit. I am fortunate that I have a voice in the industry. I'm fortunate that I get to affect certain parts of it. You know, my, my niche has kind of become the clinical research area and getting that patient voice involved. Uh, it's not the only thing that I could do, but I can't do everything. And you know how it is. If you try to do, if you try to do everything in the advocacy world, you're not actually getting anything done. So what's your bully pulpit? If you had to pick one thing, what do you, I mean, I like to say, what are you angry about for the right reasons? Oh, man, that is, because it's loaded. Again, you, it's a loaded it, question. <laughs> it is. And I talk a lot. You know, if I had to push something, I would want to change the way that clinical research is discussed about. First, that it's discussed in, in a diagnosis. Uh, I'm obviously a, a big believer in clinical research, but also I'm more of a believer in these are your options. And if you can't, if you don't know all your options when you're given a diagnosis, whether it's a, a terminal, terminal, quote, quote, cancer diagnosis or a rare disease or a chronic disease, if you don't know what your options are, how are you going to make the best decision? So for me, that would be, I would want that. I want the doctors and the, the million health doctors and 2 million nurses out there to say, look, here is what we have for you. Here is the standard of care treatment or treatments. Here is what I can potentially offer you as a clinical trial if they do that, or here are clinical trials that may be available for you. And now you, I don't like the, the cliche of, you know, you, you do your own boss and own your healthcare, but you kind of are. And that's the point is if, if I don't know what all my treatments are, I'm not able to make the best decision for me. This goes back to what you didn't know you needed and what I talked about earlier on the program, which is that there are some, I remember when like the FDA approved, oh, four new drugs this year and like three years ago, 72 new drugs out passed. And this is like 140 new drugs out passed. The burden of that moment of choice is resting on the shoulders of a human being who puts his pants on or her pants on one leg at a time every morning. How do you see the burden to the HCPs to be aware of every possible opportunity to give that patient, that next you, the objectivity to make a better choice. 
It's the facilitation, the the ironic part, the the whole two year thing. I I, I would send my, I would send a Christmas card to that doctor every year. Say, hey, look, uh, so year five still here. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect him to know everything, but what I expected him to do was help me make the decision, just like a mortgage broker would, or a I don't know the guy that cleans my you know our pool, or a, a lawyer like my wife is. Like these are professionals, and they're they're supposed to help you make decisions because they have a body of knowledge that allows them to to give you expert advice. I wanted him to give me expert guidance. And that's what I think we are missing the boat on significantly because being a healthcare professional right now, it's especially in, in the environment we are right now, it's tough work. Uh, this guy's got a practice to run. He's got a, he's got a family to feed. He's got you know his staff to pay. He's got to generate business and bill things. So I don't expect this guy to be the expert on melanoma or some other type of cancer, but I expect him to help me find the answers I need to find as a patient. Yeah, I mean, you refer to lawyers and, and pool cleaners, like that's almost like the service industry or the retail industry. You know, you've heard me say this countless times, like when you enter the shit happens store of cancer, there's no greeter. But <laughs> one of the most powerful lines that I was given by my neurosurgeon, uh, because I had like the rarest brain cancer possible when I was 21. And he said, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And it's going to suck for a day or two for you not to know, but I promise you, I will get back to you. And I was like, that's a human being. Acknowledging mm -hmm. doesn't know something. Have you experienced that? Have you seen that level of humility in medicine? I, I have. It's not always uh, first person diagnosis. I think I've had a lot of good doctors. And the, the, the best example is the oncologist I have now is a wonderful human being. She's a great doctor. She's not a melanoma specialist, and she starts our conversations with, I'm still learning about this, so I need you to help me. And, and we do, and we have a really great back and forth. <laughs> she knows that, you know, I go to ASCO, or when they actually had ASCO, <laughs> she right. understands that, that I get the concept of educated patient. My second trial, we stopped at just over four years and 75 doses, and I asked her, well, what, what do you want to do? And she said, well, let's just go to five years. And I just simply said, why? And she goes, because that's what we do in breast cancer. And there's that, that learning that I feel that my, my oncologist is because I pushed back on her and I said, I think four years is enough. We got some other opinions and we all decided to make a decision together. Kind of to answer your question, I feel that, that we have so many doctors, so many oncologists, especially that are just going by what they they may have learned in residency or they, they've read in a paper somewhere and they aren't intentionally withholding information, but sometimes they just don't remember to say like, here's what I think and here's why. Like that, that second step, here's why, and now let's go from there. Usually it's, here's your option. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy to beat up on doctors. I've seen it happen all too often, especially when you're launching like the young adult cancer movement and there are no young adult cancer standards. And it's very easy to say, you know, I'm 26 and not 80. You should think about that. But truth is, they might think about that. But if not part of a protocol or a guideline or a standard of care, they're not trained to automatically look at age first. It's always disease second because Hippocrates says, I'm here to cure you and help you the best that I can. Have you seen, I mean, it sounds like you have, a bit of a psychological transformation of the medical community writ large, especially oncology, where because of immunotherapies and trials and personalized medicine and jargon, 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 they're actually considering the human being themselves first and then what's bugging them second. 
I think so. I, and, and I'm fortunate, you know, you and I get to get to do things like ASCO or, you know, I'm very involved with the Melanoma Research Alliance, which, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> brings together a lot of good doctors that want to do research. And these, I mean, these researchers are human beings. They, re, they do research because at their core, they want to help the world be a better place. Uh, Jim Allison, who won the Nobel Prize for Science two years ago, is a uh, sort of led this this swell of of immunotherapy, and I've gotten to talk to the guy. He's a, he's a nice guy. He plays harmonica. He's a great guy, and he just wants to help people. And I see that repeated over and over and over again. Uh, sometimes our our healthcare professionals they're so good at what they do that they kind of forget that humanity part, and right. that's where I think that we can put the limited amount of resources it's going to cost you to have. Someone in there that's got some people skills that can help you navigate, like a nurse navigator or someone like that, that takes a little bit of that edge off because most patients don't go in with the knowledge of their disease and the, and the, and the different options that they have. They're relying on someone. I think of my, my aunt who's going through a, a sarcoma battle right now. She just goes and listens and says, all right, we'll do, uh, we'll do that because that's what her doctor says. And she doesn't question uh, as much or she questions and whatever the doctor says, all right, that's that, all right. That's my answer. Let's keep going. She doesn't have that. I want to kind of shop around. Let me see what else is available. Is there something at, at Sloan Kittering or Johns Hopkins that Penn might not offer? And that that humanity part right there, medicine has got to be so. I hate saying scheduled, but it is. You have you're you're in there. You're seeing the, your doctor, and you're out, and they're off to somebody else. And there's there's almost no time to just you know pick your head up and say. What am I doing? Where where is this going for me as a person? What are my goals? Do I want to live another ten years? Or you know, in in, in our cases, we were young. Uh, my aunt's she's she's no spring chicken. So right, she, and she and I said, I mean, what's what's your goal, Aunt Lorraine? What's your goal? What do you want to What do you want to do? Do you want to see your, your grandkids go to college? It's not just enough to say I survived cancer. She's at the point of her life where she needs to really state this is what I want to do. And this is what my treatment goals are. The word is dignity. I, I use that word. It's like just a cornerstone word. Like, how do you want to live out the rest of your life? And here's your here's what this looks like. And here's what this looks like. But, you know, you bring up a really important point, which is not everyone's born an advocate. Not everyone has a TJ as their Walmart greeter to help them understand what their choices are. You know, I had an uncle who was a geneticist and he helped me get through what I did. Well, ultimately didn't do chemotherapy. For, for many, many reasons, but the least of which was, you know, my doctor didn't tell me what the side effects were. My uncle did, and I had him, and that's why I still play piano. We're talking about this idea of, oh, just be your own advocate, like, quote, unquote. It's not that easy to just be your own advocate because not everyone is inherently built that way. So you are dependent on the advocacy organizations, if you can find them on Google, and the patient advocate leaders such as yourself and other colleagues that we have. I want to wrap up. Well, this is a way-to-be-continued conversation. On your thoughts on, because you've keynoted, you've done lots of panels, you've done ad boards, you write, you're really deep in the thick of the patient jargon, experience jargon. And <laughs> what are your thoughts? You know, I'm going to die on this hill. Paying your patients to contribute their suffering nonsense so you can make a profit. 
Boy, this is this is a whole other podcast waiting to happen right here. It is, but tease us because we, I want to have you back. This we've done so many shows for the, our listeners. If you go back in the feed, we've done like five shows already on pay your fucking patients, and you're right at the forefront of that. And you, you know, lots of people we we inter- interact with in our community that are very up on this. Uh, so briefly, you know, what is your take on this? Because you know, you've been doing this for eight years against your will. You didn't ask for this. You're in the store. Yeah, I keep forgetting we can curse on this. This is like this is like serious XM radio here. So we can just we can just fuck shit. Whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> Who gives a shit? I feel like we'll. No one listens anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> so here is my take on this. Um, most patients will probably give you their time and their energy because they're passionate about it, and they will do it for a song. I, I was like that, and uh, a guy named I don't know if you remember Jack Whelan. Uh, was a oh great- yeah sure. Jack was a great patient advocate. And when I was early on in my career, I, I had done a couple panels. I don't think I'd even keynote at this point. And I met Jack a few times and he had just done a presentation and I was talking to him afterwards. And he told me something that I still to this day try to repeat to everybody that I that wants to be a part of this advocacy world. He said, you have value and don't ever forget that you have value and they will pay you a fraction of what that value is to them. And it'll feel like the most money that you're ever going to get because all you're doing is sitting there and talking about being a patient. Goes, but that is valuable. And he goes, and you, if you sit here and listen and you understand the patient journey besides your own, that brings a significant amount of insight that it would take pharma companies hundreds of thousands of dollars to get in market research. And if you can take that, that knowledge. So that really drove me to say, look, I know I have value here. I want to be a part of it. I have that passion to be a part of designing tri- clinical trials. My, my, a lot of my stuff is in the, is in the R&D side. I'm on the, on the clinical side and not the commercial side of pharma. And I'm like, all right, how can I get patients in here? How can I find you know, one, of our, you know, one of our colleagues and say, hey, they want to have a voice too. And more importantly, convince someone that's <laughs> writing the check, hey, why, where, where's the ROI on this? Um, right. The the best answer I ever got to that because I I've asked this through pharma companies through different service providers. Uh, a friend of mine, Anthony Costello, who is a is a VP at, at Metadata, uh, he brought a, a bunch of patients in, and they expect us to ask hard questions. And at the very end of it, I asked him. I said, "Why are you doing this? What's what's in it for you?" And you know, everyone's got that. What's in it for me? And I said, "Why are you doing this? Why you're spending?" You know, a nominal amount of money, but it's someone's budget to bring in six patients to have a design session around us with you know, with Alicia Staley and our our friend Alicia, um, who's an right. amazing advocate. Why why are you bringing in one of the best cancer advocates uh, to be a part of your team? His answer was really good, and it was really insightful. And I and I wish I could. I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'm paraphrasing what he said. He goes, you know what? Maybe down the line we'll we'll sell more software, but. It's really the right thing to do. It's we are designing things that are going to affect patients' lives and affect the families of patients. Uh, and, and our software, whether we have a patient board or not, um, it probably won't make a noticeable difference on our bottom line. But if we can make patients' lives better, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And trying to capture that and get that attitude and, and convince someone who does have to. You know, sign a check to say, look, this is, you know, this patient experience, this patient advocacy world, putting together an advisory board or, or paying someone to come in there and give you insights. 
maybe it feels weird, maybe you're worried about compliance, but it is the right thing to do because there is value for you. There is certainly value for us in sharing our experiences. And in the end, the the mythical ROI on it is that, that we're able to give people some compensation for their time, their effort, their passion, their knowledge, their experience, their, their lived lives, and have that help design, develop potential healthcare solutions for someone else. Because we want to do that as patients. You and I both are like, I mean, we'll, you know, don't tell anybody. We'd probably do this for free if we could. Um, no, no, no. Don't ever say those words. <laughs> okay. Don't ever say one. those words. No. Erase that. <laughs> editor, editor. Look, I'm just. We, we can endlessly discuss the philosophies of right thing to do versus appropriate compensation because there's value. And that's the magic word of pharma. But this is a definitely to be continued and an endless recurring theme here on Out of Patients. Uh, TJ Sharp, gentleman, scholar, renaissance man, melanoma survivor, patient advocate. You could see him. Pretty much just, you're like the only TJ Sharp, S-H-A-R-P-E, I might add, mm. that you can highly Google, uh, contributes to skincancer.net, novartisoncology.com, and uh, your blog. What, what's your website for the blog? TJSharp.com, once it actually gets its, gets back up and standing, will we'll hopefully house the 200 or so posts that chronicle the journey. And one of these days, it'll be a book. It's just, I mean, I already have all the material, Matt. I just need to actually put it together. Well, thanks for coming on the show. More to come and uh, stay in touch, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.